shadow of Tiger Woods' recent and controversial return to the professional golf circuit, I'd like to share a legendary story with you this morning that I first heard probably now almost 15 years ago involving another professional golf icon. Some years ago, the famous professional golfer Arnold Palmer played a series of exhibition matches in Saudi Arabia. And when he finished playing, the king of Saudi Arabia was so impressed with Palmer's golfing expertise that he said in a rather generous uh, gesture, Mr. Palmer, I would like to give you a gift. To which Palmer, who was a multimillionaire in his own right, demurred and said, King, it really isn't necessary. I just enjoyed playing and meeting your people. A gift's not necessary. And the king replied, I would be very upset if you wouldn't permit me to give you a gift. Well, Palmer thought about it for a minute and he said, well, King, I suppose, what about a golf club? A golf club would be a beautiful memento of my visit and uh, the ability to play here. So the king said, fine. And on the next day, delivered to Palmer's hotel room, was the title to a golf club. 36 holes, thousands of acres, trees, lakes, buildings, etc. And the moral of that story is, in the presence of a king, don't ask for small gifts. Now that story is obviously a well-crafted legend, yet it appeals to some place inside of us, all of us, that rejoices in the providence of a gift too incredible to imagine. It's something each of us secretly desires and hopes beyond hope that we might have that happen to us, something similar. Now, as we wrap up this small little section of the series that we're on, on the fruit of the Spirit, I want to ask you this morning, what is your deepest desire? What's your deepest desire? In light of this continuing series on the Holy Spirit and what He wants to accomplish in your life today, at this moment, during this service, and after you leave here today, what is your greatest desire? What is it that you long for in your walk with God? Is it to become more and more like Jesus Christ? To be filled with a compassionate love and full joy, true peace, enduring patience, tender kindness, sincere goodness, immovable fidelity, genuine humility, and undiminished self-control? Because if it is, I want you to know one of the greatest truths of the Bible, that God desires it for you even more than you desire it for yourself. In addition, he stands ready, willing, and able to deliver, to grant that desire. And do you know how I know that? Because Jesus said so. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 11, we read these words beginning in verse 9. Luke chapter 11 and beginning in verse 9. Jesus said, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by a son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? 
Now here's the kicker. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more? You know what that is, that passage of Scripture, especially verse 13? That, spiritually speaking, is the title to a golf club. 36 holes, thousands of acres, trees, lakes, buildings, etc. God our Father has given us the incomparable gift of the Holy Spirit. He's at work in us to produce the greatest version of the person that he created you and me to be imaginable. And in the process, he helps us become to others what Christ Jesus is to us. That's what he's doing. We become, in a word, the spitting image of Jesus. That's what the Spirit-filled life is all about. Ephesians chapter 2, 10, verse, chapter 2, verse 10, says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared beforehand in advance for us to do. Now, as I quoted last week, you are not your handiwork. You are God's handiwork. Amen? Your life is not your project. Your life is God's project. God thought you up, and he knows what you were intended to be. And he's in the process of making you out to be that person, if you let him. But there's something about this spirit-filled life that most of us totally disregard. I mean, we just don't acknowledge it. And that is that even though it is the Spirit's work within us that produces Christ-likeness, we have a responsibility to make it operative on a daily basis. Is that right? Is that right? We're not puppets. God's not pulling these strings and we're responding. And God won't force himself on us against our will. He wants us to receive and apply power from the Spirit that he gave us to become the person that God had in mind when he created us, his handiwork. Laziness and inattention will not only stifle the fruit production of a garden, but eventually it will actually kill it. Similarly, on a spiritual level, the garden of Christ-likeness requires some personal cultivation. Is that right? In First Things First, Roger Merrill tells of a business consultant who decided to landscape his grounds, and he hired a woman with a doctorate in horticulture who was extremely knowledgeable. And because the business consultant was very busy and traveled a lot, he kept emphasizing to her the need to create his garden in a way that would require little or no maintenance on his part. He insisted on automatic sprinklers and other similar labor-saving devices. Finally, she stopped him and she looked at him in the eye and she said, there's one thing that you need to deal with before we get any further in this project. If there's no gardener, there's no garden. There are no labor-saving devices for growing a garden of spiritual virtue, folks. There's just none. Becoming a person of spiritual fruitfulness requires 
time, it requires attention and care. Turn to Galatians chapter 5 again as we round out this little, little mini part of a larger series. Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of your flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you please, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And he says, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, and then he lists them. We don't have to go through them all. But then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, in verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then he says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desire, desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now over the past few weeks, we've been unearthing this biblical concept of the fruit of the Spirit, seeking to discover exactly how this spiritual, the Spirit-filled life works and how the fruit relates to it. And in brief, Here's what we've uncovered so far, just to catch you up to speed. Spiritual fruit, first of all, is the expectation of God's Son. And we looked at John 15 a little bit for that. And the criteria for enjoying a productive life in the Spirit and seeing His fruit multiplied in our lives, and that's twofold. Number one, spiritual fruit demands a right relationship to Christ. Remember that? And we must abide in Him. Abide in me and let my words abide in you and ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you, Jesus says. Unless you abide in the vine, no fruit is possible without me, apart from me. You can do nothing, he says. You can't do it yourself. Without the vine, the branch is useless. But there's a second, a second area that we looked at and that spiritual fruit demands a right relationship not only to Christ but to his word. We not only abide in him, but we must also obey him and let his word abide in us, allowing that relationship to flow freely. Because apart from our abiding in Christ and his word abiding in us, there will be no fruit. Let me share with you a great biblical illustration of what this looks like from an author that I was just reading recently this week. He says, experiencing the flow of the Spirit, spiritually speaking, is what makes us come alive. And the picture Jesus uses for life in the Spirit in the book of John is a river. A river. Picture a river. Rivers are mentioned 150 times in Scripture, often as a picture of spiritual life. And for good reason. Israel was a desert. So a river is grace. A river is life. We don't know much about the Garden of Eden, but we do know this. A river ran through it. Genesis 2.10 says, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. If a river flows, life flourishes. If a river dries up, life dies. So it is with you and me and the Spirit. Following me so far? The author says, when our son was three years old, you probably have all experienced this, 
I've experienced it, and now we're going to experience it again with our grandkids. But when our son was three years old, he wanted to pour his own glass of milk out of a very full carton. Okay? I can see you've all experienced it. You're smiling. His wife was reluctant, and we had three small children, and spills were a way of life, he says. But our son was set on it, so the mom couldn't say no, although she did warn him to be careful. His little hands picked up the heavy gallon container, and the milk went gushing into the glass. But wonder of wonders, it stopped just in the nick of time. The glass wasn't just full. You know how it is, right? The milk crowned the top of the glass. Not a drop was spilled. Gloria in excelsis. <laughs> but then Johnny was so excited that he grabbed the glass and swung it exuberantly from the counter to the table, and the spillover was tremendous, obviously. And he says this, when someone bumps into me, what spills out of me reveals what's inside of me. It's true, isn't it? That's the idea behind Paul's words. When he spoke of people being full of the Spirit, and the spillover effect is tremendous. Jesus told his followers that when the Spirit arrived, they would receive power. And when the Spirit flows in you, you're given power to become the person God designed you to be. There is a river at the beginning of the Bible, and there is a river at the end of the Bible. In Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, it says this, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of a great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, even in California, they don't have trees that yield their fruit every month. Right? This scene is a picture of supreme flourishing. For the water flows from God, the source of life, and in particular, when we are in the flow of the Spirit, we become increasingly full of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We become full of it. And when we get bumped, that's the spillover. The best indicator that I am living in the flow is the growth of the fruit. Amen? Amen? A woman sees a father shopping with a fussy two-year-old in his grocery cart. You've experienced that too, haven't you? Be patient, Billy, he whispers. You can handle this, Billy. It's okay, Billy. The woman said to him, I don't mean to interrupt your shopping, but I just had to tell you how wonderfully loving and patient you are with your little Billy. And the man replied, actually, my son's name is Patrick. My name's Billy. <laughs> See, the Spirit is available to whisper to us thoughts of love and joy and peace and patience every moment of our life right now. All we have to do is stop and ask and listen, and seek, and find. 
I can't make myself loving or joyful. Can you? We can't do it. A tree's job is not to bear fruit. A tree's job is to abide near the river. And the fruit does not ripen overnight. When I'm in the flow of the Spirit, I am moved toward greater love and more joy. And the blessing doesn't stop with me. It doesn't stop with you. It's good news for the entire world. Amen? Amen. You and I, metaphorically speaking, and as a matter of application, are like the leaves in that verse I just read from Revelation. Leaves are to flourish for the healing of the nations. So think about this now as a matter of application to your life. For the healing of the Gaza Strip, you and I are leaves. For the healing of Darfur, for the healing of the children in Haiti, for the apartment building full of loneliness next door to you, where the leaves for the healing of that. For the expensive home in the suburbs ripped apart by divorce. For the lonely worker at an office party. For the forgotten woman at a homeless shelter. For the friend struggling with cancer. Or for whoever it is in your life right now, today, in need of grace. You're the leaves. For the healing of the nations. If you're abiding in Christ and the river's running through you, you're going to provide that healing through the fruit of the Spirit. Because the Spirit never just flows in us, He always flows through us so that others might flourish as well. The river can flow through you. And the river can flow through me. And it can flow in you, but it always flows through you when you're in the Spirit. And when you're in the flow, there is going to be some spillover that's going to bless somebody else. The fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in the garden of obedience where you plant your roots down deep in the Word of Christ and in your relationship with Christ and you will bear fruit. And we're not going to experience God's power in our life apart from that apart from abiding in obedience. Spiritual fruit is not only the expectation of God's Son, but it should be the experience of God's people. Now, as I've said in the last few messages, the fruit of the Spirit is simply the character traits of Christ being spiritually, relationally, and personally worked out of our lives, spilling over to the world. Now, remember I've divided them into three groups. Let me review the first few groups, the first two groups. The first group deals with our spiritual virtues. Spiritual virtues of the Spirit's fruit is love, joy, and peace. They're indicative of a thriving spiritual relationship with God who is the epitome of love, the source of full joy, and the substance of true peace. The second group seems to express slightly different focus and they describe the characteristics that color our relationship with other people. They are the relational virtues of the Spirit's fruit. If love, joy, and peace are the qualities that characterize our relationship with God, then patience, kindness, and goodness paint a picture of how we relate to others while under the Spirit's control. I mean, they're all overlapping, but I'm just doing this for practical purposes, setting them up in groups of three. 
The final triad that we're going to look at today seems to reflect who we really are inside. Our inner man or woman. What spills over and out of us as we move through life. And I'm going to refer to them today as the personal virtues of the Spirit's fruit. I guess you could call them, you know, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You could call them spiritual fruit with an attitude. Because that's what they are. Not the world's attitude, but the Spirit's attitude. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They describe aspects of our character, who we are inside, what we're like on the inside, even when no one else is looking. And they also require cultivation on our part. They don't just happen one day. Let's take them one at a time. Faithfulness, first of all. Character, said Plutarch, is simply long habit continued. Have you heard that quote before? That's exactly what the Spirit does through the fruit of faithfulness. It's developing what I call the habit of holiness or what Eugene Peterson referred to as a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we produce this spiritual faithfulness by deciding to formulate new habits. I'm not talking about self-sanctification. But the Spirit initiates changes in us as He flows through us. He works through our disciplined efforts and blesses them. Our feeble attempts to get our lives in spiritual shape are useless unless we rely on Him to bring it all to pass. For example, we don't become men and women of prayer unless we make time to pray. Right? Makes sense? It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen unless you make the time to pray. We won't begin to know Christ or accomplish His will unless we make a personal effort to get up off the couch, turn off the TV, and open up the Word of God. It won't happen. We won't love our spouses as Christ loves the church unless we practice what God says we are supposed to be as husbands. Right, men? We're not going to raise Christian children if we refuse to be involved in their spiritual development. As J.I. Packer said, holiness by habit forming is not self-sanctification by self-effort, but it is simply a matter of understanding the Spirit's method and then keeping in step with Him. Keeping in step with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is, Paul said, faithfulness, loyalty, the ability to follow through with our commitments, to do what you said you'd do. Now let me ask you, are you faithful to your commitments? Are we? To your earthly commitments first, and then to your spiritual commitments. When you came to Christ, you asked him to be, I hope you did, Lord of your life. Right? It's part of that whole relational transaction when you come to Christ. You asked Him to be Lord of your life. You said, I said, I would follow Him. And you did follow Him. And I did follow Him. But here's the big question. Are you following Him still? And if not, 
What happened? What happened? What happened in the process to short-circuit that dedication and commitment? Over 200 years ago, when the United States Marine Corps was being formed, a lot of time was given to the consideration of an appropriate motto. The outcome? The Latin phrase, what is it? Semper Fidelis. That phrase, Semper Fidelis, is etched into the mind of every United States Marine. The phrase that's etched into their minds simply means always faithful. Always faithful. Steve Farrar writes those two powerful words. But of the two, the first is the most important, for it explains how a Marine is to be faithful. A Marine is not to be faithful only when it's personally convenient or when the circumstances will guarantee his personal happiness. Semper Fidelis means always faithful. Always. Listen, friends, spiritually speaking, God is more than a cosmic marine colonel. Okay? He's Lord of eternity. Amen? Amen. And he's out to produce men and women who are semper fidelis, always faithful in the little things as well as the big things. Faithful in their marriages, faithful to their kids, faithful in their walk with Christ, faithful in their local body of believers, the church, faithful in prayer, faithful in giving. It means becoming a person who is true to your word. Faithfulness results in being committed to the word of God, remaining loyal to the Son of God, and staying filled with the Spirit of God. Not simply when it's convenient, but always, always. Faithful is such a strong word and such an important word. You know that the Bible uses it to talk about God, to characterize God? The Bible says that God is faithful. His mercies are new every morning, right? Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. Jesus is faithful. There's a name written on him, faithful and true, right? In Revelation 19, and his followers are to be faithful. In 1 Corinthians 4, 2, if we're stewards of what God has given us, it's incumbent upon us to be found trustworthy. In other words, faithful. This is what the Spirit wants to do in your life and in mine. So that when it's all said and done, we can say, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. Now suppose you had information right now, this morning, and you knew that Jesus was coming to receive you to himself an hour after this service. Suppose you knew that. An hour after this service, that where he is, you may be also. Would you feel comfortable in saying those words? I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. I hope so. I hope so. One of the Holy Spirit's primary concerns is to lead us into the fruit of faithfulness, into practical, personal habits of holiness, long obedience in the same direction. How important is that concern to us? To you personally. 
We should all adopt the prayer spoken for us over 150 years ago by the late Robert Murray McShane. He said this, he said, Lord, make me as holy as it is possible for a saved sinner to be. That's a great prayer. Make me as holy as it is possible for a saved sinner to be. Faithfulness. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is also gentleness. And some translations here use the word meekness. You've heard that word. Meekness. Humility in its purest form. But believe it or not, the term meekness, the fruit meekness, is the fruit of power. It's the fruit of power. It's not weakness. Rather, the original word in the scriptures refers to power kept under control. Power under control. At one point, Moses was the most powerful man in the entire known world, wielding the very power of God. Yet it is written of him, now the man Moses was very humble. The ESV version says, the man Moses was very meek, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. That's Numbers 12, verse 3. Jesus undeniably the most powerful being in the universe, called himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, gentle and humble in heart or meek. See, God wants to use us powerfully and he doesn't expect us to underestimate our own ability. You know, most people you would think have a problem with overestimating their own ability. But in the spiritual realm, God doesn't want us to underestimate the Spirit's ability in us. But the power that will be produced within us by the Spirit to turn the world upside down for Christ will be not egotistical, not arrogant, not prideful, but rather humble, gentle, and meek. It will resemble the attitude of Christ which Isaiah captured in very intimate detail in Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 3. The words describe Jesus like this. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Now this is the key. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I love that verse. I love that description of Jesus. Power under control. Not wielding it to bludgeon people to death or to try to control people or manipulate them or to judge them, but to be meek and humble. You know what the fruit of gentleness makes us do? Biblically speaking, it makes us submissive to God, according to Colossians 3.12. Teachable in spirit, according to James. Considerate as we correct one another in love. As we witness to one another. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we do it with gentleness and respect. Right? Not beating them over the head with a Bible. Gentleness and respect. And as we speak the truth and love to others in Ephesians 4 2. 
That's what the fruit of gentleness does to us. Christ said that these are the people that will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. The humble. We're to wear gentleness, the Bible says, like a piece of clothing. In, in Colossians 3, verse 12, and so as those chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, clothe yourselves with a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's this gentleness that forms the basis for this last aspect of the Spirit's fruit. The one nobody wants to talk about, self-control. Right? Self-control. Someone said that self-control is the capacity to break a chocolate bar into four pieces with your bare hands and only eat one. <laughs> That's self-control. We could use a lot of other metaphors, but of all the different aspects that we've looked at, this is, the pro is probably the one that most of us least exhibit. We're not a nation practiced in self-control, are we? We're not. We indulge our appetites. And I'll, and I'll admit to it, every bit as much as all of you. We indulge our appetites, whether it involves eating, drinking, watching TV, reading, relaxing, playing sports, or having sex. We know nothing of self-control. When our flesh rules, we lose control of ourselves. But the Spirit of God empowers a man or a woman to rule his or her own spirit rightly. That's what Paul says. He enables us to hold back our passions and gain victory over our sinful desires. The filling of the Spirit gives us mastery over ourselves. If you're not master over yourself, if you're having a problem with self-control, I can guarantee you, you're not filled with the Spirit at the time. That's why Paul says, be continually filled with the Spirit. You know what that means when Paul says be filled with the Spirit? It means we can, first of all. Secondly, if we can be filled with the Holy Spirit continually, that means we can quit smoking. That means we, can, we don't have to watch porn on the Internet. That means we don't have to eat like a pig, drink like a fish, or shop till we drop. We don't have to do that stuff. We don't have to fly off the handle in a fit of rage because we lack control of our temper, right? We don't have to. In his autobiography, number one, Billy Martin told about hunting in Texas with Mickey Mantle. Mickey had a friend who would let him hunt on his ranch. And uh, when they reached the ranch, Mickey told Billy to wait in the car while he checked in with his friend. So Mantle's friend quickly gave them permission to hunt, but he asked Mickey a favor. He had a pet mule in the barn who was going blind. And he didn't have the heart to put him out of his misery. So he asked Mickey to shoot the mule for him. So when Mickey Mantle came back to the car, he pretended to be angry. Okay? Get this now? Picture. He's mad. Stomping back to the car. He scowled and slammed the door and Billy Martin asked him what was wrong. And Mickey said his friend wouldn't let them hunt. I'm so mad at that guy, Mantle said. I'm going to go out in his barn and, sh barn and shoot one of his mules. So Mantle drove like a maniac to the barn. Martin protested. We can't do that. But Mickey was adamant. Just watch me, he shouted. He got out of the barn. Um, when they got to the barn, Mantle jumped out of the car 
with his rifle, ran inside, bang, shot the mule. And as he was leaving, though, he heard two more shots. He ran back to the car and he saw that Billy Martin had taken out his rifle as well. He said, what are you doing, Martin? He yelled. Martin yelled back, face red with anger, we'll show that son of a gun. I just killed two of his cows. It's a true story. Anger, anger can be dangerously contagious, can it? It can be. You get angry at your spouse, you start screaming. Guess what happens in the return? It ratchets up a little bit to the next level, doesn't it? When the spouse comes back, and then you go up a little bit higher. And the next thing you know, oh, hell's breaking loose, right? And your marriage is like teetering in that moment. Don't make friends with a hot-tempered man, Proverbs says, or you may learn his ways. Proverbs also says that a gentle answer turns away wrath. Ever try that in an argument? Sometimes that makes the other person even matter. John Wesley's mother once wrote these words of caution to him while he was a student at Oxford. She said, quote, anything which increases the authority of the body over the mind is an evil thing. Solomon said it another way. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Whether it be anger, drunkenness, promiscuity, gossip, gluttony, jealousy, greed, pride, lust, misguided religious fervor, or any other variation that you can come up with with what has historically been known as the seven deadly sins, nothing brings more scandal to the church or causes more destruction in a person's life than the no-holds-barred indulgence of one's self-centered passions. Nothing. Now listen carefully. Because this is what Paul is bringing it all down to. Write it down. Learn it. Here it is. The fruit of the Spirit's control is the presence of self-control. The fruit of the Spirit's control is the presence of self-control. If there's going to be any kind of victory in the area of personal passions that you have, it will be as the Spirit empowers you to rule your own spirit and propels you to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They are above and beyond the realm of law. Not one of them can be legislated. No law, no matter how noble-minded, how politically correct, can make a person love, can make a person joyful, can guarantee him peace, sustain him with patience, inspire him with kindness, or motivate him to goodness. No rule on the face of the earth can induce a person to loyalty, mold him in gentleness or discipline, him to control himself. It will never happen. No law will bring that about. Only the Spirit can do that in you. 
Men cannot produce spiritual fruit apart from a spiritual vine. But the beauty is that when a person lives by the Spirit, the flip side is also true. When you live by the Spirit, you don't need any law. You don't need any laws in your life when you live by the Spirit. That's what it says. Against such things, in verse 23, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. That's why he says that. You can be a law unto yourself when you live by the Spirit. Because the Spirit always points us to Christ. Right? He will never lead us anywhere but closer to Jesus. Remember I said that way back when? He never will. And he wants us to keep in step with him. The only things that will hold us back from that are our sinful passions and those desires that we don't control of our flesh. That's why the scripture challenges us here to crucify it. Nail it to the wall. Consider it dead. Paul's saying here, if you live by the Spirit, let, let us also walk by the Spirit. In other words, he's saying, be what you really are if you're in Christ. Be in practice what you are in principle. My wife's favorite verse, or life verse, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, yet it is not, yet I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the only begotten Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's it, right there. That's the great blending of God's sovereign work in our lives and our human responsibility to live it out. We live in the Spirit by God's provision. His permanent presence with you happened at salvation. And whether or not we walk by the Spirit is a matter of personal and deliberate choice. You ever see a baby learning how to walk? Of course you have. You're the same ones that saw babies spilling glasses of milk. You've seen babies walk. Every single step when a baby learns to walk requires personal, conscious choice, right? And effort. Slowly but surely, two or three steps are put together before they fall. Then seven or eight, then 20 or 30. Before long, that child is running everywhere and never gives it a second thought and you wish they were back in the crib. Right? Walking at that point has become second nature to the child. That's exactly the idea I get when I read these verses. Listen, friends, to live and walk by the Spirit is to be so in tune with Him, so in balance, that His nature becomes our second nature. That's what it means to be a new creature in Christ. That's what it means to know that the old things have passed away, new things have come. The fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in the garden of obedience, one step at a time, one step at a time. At first, we can only put one or two together before we fall flat on our faces. Then with diligence and effort coupled with prayer and spiritual submission, we start to walk. And it's not long before we realize we can run. And we start running for Christ. Running the race that God has set before us, as the scripture says. But friends, I want you to know that it's not a sprint it's a marathon. 
It's a marathon. We're running a marathon. And if we're going to make it to the finish line, we need Jesus. We need to have our gaze riveted on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let me close with this. You remember the author Nathaniel Hawthorne, right? Writer of short stories in the early 1800s to late 1800s. He wrote a short story called The Great Stone Face. You probably have read it. It tells of a lad who lived in the village below the mountain, and there upon the mountain was the image of that great stone face. He wrote it after he had visited the White Mountains and saw the man in the mountain, which is now collapsed, but nevertheless. There was this legend that someday someone was going to come to that village who would look just like that great stone face, and he would do some wonderful things for that village and would be the means of great blessing to that village. Well, as the story goes, it gripped this young, this young boy. And he used to slip away. And hour after hour after hour, he would stare at that great stone face. Thinking of the story about the one who was going to come someday. Years and years passed, and that, that person, as he waited, never showed up. And still the young man did what the boy had done. He went to sit and contemplate the majesty and the beauty of that great stone face. Years later, the youth passed away, the youth passed away and middle age came on. Still he couldn't get rid of that legend. And then old age came. And one day as he walked through the village, somebody looked at him and said, He's come. He's come. The one who was like the great stone face. And you're him. And he became like that which he had contemplated all his life. If you want to be Christ-like, you need to look at Jesus. You need to keep your gaze riveted on Jesus. If you want to bear the fruit of the Spirit, you need to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus who gave us the Spirit. Contemplate Christ and you will grow in grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the promise of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit that you've given us. Thank you also for the promise that you will indeed perform what you have begun in us that we might become conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus. Help us, our Father, to take our responsibility seriously. That we recognize that we must abide in you in order for you to fulfill that work. So may we be truly committed to allowing us to do your work, allowing you to do your work in us, that we might be your handiwork that we might walk in those good works that you have prepared before the foundation of the world for us. And we'll give you all the glory for it because that's what our Savior and our Lord, our forerunner did for us, Jesus. And we want to imitate him. He showed us the way. May we keep our eyes fixed on him. Amen.